I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me for one last time to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We are going to take a break from our study of Romans uh, after today. Next Sunday marks the first Sunday of Advent. And so we're going to do something a little different for the four Sundays of Advent, which will take us, if my reckoning is right, to December 21st. For the four Sundays of Advent, we're going to look at what are called, what are known as the servant songs. There are four of them, and they are found in the book of Isaiah, starting in chapter 42, ending in chapter 53. Four servant songs that point us to the Lord Jesus. And so they're going to be our focus for the season of Advent. Having done that, we'll return on the last Sunday of December. I think that's the 28th. Lord willing, obviously, we'll return to the book of Romans. And we will pick up right where we left off with chapter 6, verse 1. So for today, one final look at chapter 5. A follow along as I read verses 18 through 21. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Clearly, Paul begins these verses with a comparison. It is a comparison that he begins, he initiates all the way back in the 12th verse, but he doesn't actually get to it until verses 18 and 19. In this comparison, Paul simply put, sets forth two men. This is the comparison, two men. And so you have the first man, place him with me over here. His name is Adam. We have the second man, place him right over here to your left, my right. He is the last Adam, also known as the Lord Jesus Christ. There you have it, two men, Adam, Christ. But he also points to the fact in these verses that there are two humanities. There is over here with Adam, the old humanity. Everyone who has ever lived, everyone who is living right now, everyone who will ever live, all of the physical descendants of Adam, the old humanity right over here. But you see, there is a second humanity, a new humanity. Put them right over here with the Lord Jesus Christ. They are his spiritual descendants. They are those who believe in Christ. They are those who have repented of their sin, turned from their unrighteousness, and they are resting in the Lord Jesus as Savior. So two men, two humanities. 
But you see, there are also two actions. And so back over here, go back over here with me. You have Adam, you have the old humanity, and you have a single action. Adam's disobedience back in the garden. God gave him an express commandment not to eat from that specific tree. He disobeyed. That was his trespass. That was his transgression. That was his act of disobedience. But you see, there is a second action back over here with Christ. The new humanity. Those who believe in him. We have, in comparison to Adam's disobedience, we have Christ's obedience. And so we have two men, Adam, Christ. We have two humanities, the old humanity, all who are in Adam by virtue of their physical descendancy. The new humanity, all who are in Christ by virtue of their faith. We have Adam's single act of disobedience back in the garden, and we have Christ's single act of obedience. He took on the form of a servant, and he obeyed willingly even unto death upon Calvary's cross. But you see, there are also two results. Jump back over here with me to the one man, Adam. The old humanity, all who are his physical descendants, his one act of disobedience, and there was a very specific result. And Paul names this result in verses 18 and 19. He tells us that because of that one single solitary trespass, because of that one single solitary act of disobedience, what was the result? Condemnation, not only for Adam, but for all of his descendants. All of them cursed in Adam. All of them guilty in Adam. And therefore, all of them condemned in Adam. Now come with me back over here. We have Christ. We have the new humanity. All who believe in him. We have Christ's act. His single solitary act. His life lived in obedience, submission to his father, culminating in his sacrifice upon Calvary's cross. And what is the result? The result is justification for all who are in Christ. The result is justification for that new humanity, all who believe in Christ. So two men, work with me, two men. We have two humanities, we have two actions, and we have two results. And to top it all off, we have two covenants. And so over here, we have the covenant of works. God established that covenant of works with Adam as the head of humanity. He gave Adam a commandment as our representative. Therefore, when Adam disobeyed that commandment, his disobedience is your disobedience. His guilt is your guilt and mine. And his condemnation is your condemnation and my condemnation by covenant. And therefore, we bear the curse, which is what? Death. But now we move, praise God, back over here to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is in view is not a covenant of works. What is in view is a covenant of grace, whereby this last Adam, this man, the Lord Jesus Christ acting on behalf of his people, 
that is his spiritual descendants, mark my words, all exclusively, only those who believe in him, the Lord Jesus fulfills that covenant of works. He fulfills it by obeying perfectly. And he fulfills it by bearing the curse upon Calvary's cross, whereby because I am one with Christ, he is my head. Guess what? God reckons, God charges what Christ did to me. God treats me as if I did it. He treats me as if I lived a perfect life. He treats me as if I died, was buried, and rose again. He treats me like this. He handles me like this. He views me like this because I am one with this head of this new humanity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has done it all on my behalf. That is the comparison. Let me cut right to the chase. It begs an obvious question, doesn't it? My friend, Are you in Christ? There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Not all roads lead to Rome. There is Christ and there is Christ alone. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. You are either under that covenant of works or you are under that covenant of grace. You are either condemned, or you are justified. You are either dead, or you are alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the obvious question. It's the question of the moment. It is the question of the hour. Are you in Christ? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? And do you rest in His perfect Work, not anything you think you've ever done, not anything you think you could ever do. You do not bring anything to the table, you do not offer anything to Him. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, even what we think are our most righteous deeds, our filthy rags in His sight. We cling to Christ, and because we are made one with Him, we are justified. It's the comparison. It is the comparison. Now look just for a moment at the very first word of verse 20. I'm reading from the English standard version. Now, now Paul has established his comparison. These two men, these two humanities, these two actions, these two results, and these two covenants. Now, now I want to insert a thought essentially what Paul's saying. Look, I know what some of you are thinking. And I know, I know exactly what some of my fellow countrymen, the Jews, are thinking. I'm a Jew. Paul's a Jew. I know what you're thinking, my fellow countrymen. What about Moses? Eh? If ever there should be a third head of humanity, it should be Moses. Surely, Paul, you've made a mistake. Paul, surely, what you meant to write was Adam, Moses, Christ. That we have these three heads. No, I've written what I've written. Well, what about Moses? What about that Mosaic covenant that God made with Israel? What about that law? Where does it fit in? You're telling us that everything, the internal plan of redemption, 
God's eternal plan of salvation. You're telling us that human history, you're telling us that the entire scriptures from Genesis to Revelation rests, our understanding of these things, our interpretation of these things rests on simply two men, Adam and Christ. Well, what about the law? And so Paul, in verses 20 through 21, he explains exactly where Moses fits. He explains exactly where the law fits in. And we can summarize his explanation in four points. Here we go. Point number one. He makes it in verse 20. The law entered. It's not the exact word he uses. Look at the first few words in verse 20. Now the law came in. The law entered. What's he talking about? He's referring to Mount Sinai, isn't he? He's referring to that covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. He's referring to what we describe, what Moses point, what scripture points to as the Mosaic covenant. It came in. The law entered at that specific moment in time of human history. Now, Paul is not saying that there was no law before Sinai. There was law. You go back to chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, and there Paul makes it abundantly clear that God has actually written the law where? Upon the human heart. That is, each human being, I, it doesn't matter when the person has lived, it doesn't matter where the person has lived, each and every human being has an inherent knowledge of the law. That is of God's commands. Everyone knows it's wrong to murder. Everyone knows it's wrong to steal. Everyone knows it's wrong to commit adultery. Everyone knows it's wrong to deceive. When people do those things, they do so in disregard of what they actually know to be true. And they do so while suppressing what they know to be true in their heart of hearts. God has penned, written the law on each and every human heart. And so the law was in the world even before it was given at Sinai. So what does Paul mean? He means simply this. It wasn't codified until Sinai. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses declares that when he was on the mount, the Lord gave him what? Tablets, stone tablets, containing the commandments. And he says what? They were written by the finger of God, the law came in, it came in. A law had been given back in the garden, the covenant of works. No more laws had been given subsequent to that. The law, yes, those commandments were a knowledge of them given, granted innately to every human being, but the law as a codified, written articulation, expression of the will of God not given until Sinai. The law entered. The second point is this. The trespass increased. Start with me at the outset of verse 20. Now the law came in for a purpose. 
to increase the trespass. It's singular. In the context, your mind should go where immediately? Back to verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, the one trespass, the one transgression, the one act, singular act of disobedience was Adam's back in the Garden of Eden. The law entered in that is written by the finger of God at Sinai. Why? So that as it came in, the trespass might actually increase. That the trespass would no longer be singular. It would become plural. That now God's law had been given in written form. There was a law to be transgressed. There was a law to be trespassed. And so God gave that law at Sinai for this very specific objective purpose. It was to turn that single act of disobedience back into the garden, in the garden into a mountain of transgressions, a mountain of trespasses, to show people just how much they have transgressed the revealed will of God. Let me suggest to you, let me affirm that the law does that in three ways. Firstly, the law increases our knowledge of sin. Those aren't my words. That comes out of Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. That as we read God's commandments, we see the precise nature, the precise nature of our sin. And we also behold sin's power over us. Turn with me just for a moment back to chapter 3. Back in chapter 3, Paul paints that very dark, depressing picture for us of our sin, where he tears off the mask and he shows us its nature. He shows us its power. And he tells us, in, the, in verse 11 of chapter 3, that our sin is seen in what we think. No one understands. Our sin is evident in what we want. Still in verse 11, no one seeks for God. Our sin is evident in what we choose. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Our sin is seen in what we say. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. It's seen in what we do, verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. It is seen in what we fear, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And so the law came in for this purpose, that as I read God's commandments and I get stuck on the very first one, you shall have no other gods before me. I come face to face with what reality. I am by nature an idolater. And I cannot change myself. I love it. All sorts of idols breeding in my heart. The inner recesses of my soul. All sorts of things I worship one way or another. Substitutes for God Almighty. I don't even have to read the rest of the commandments. I just get stuck on the first one. You shall have no other 
God's before me. C.H. Spurgeon writes, man is fallen. Every part and passion of his nature is perverted. He is sick from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. You don't believe me, some of you. Shall I prove it to you? Yes, I shall. Whether you accept the proof or not, I can't help with that. But let me prove it to you. Here it is. What enters your thoughts uninvited? You do not have to go any further than that, my friend. What enters your thoughts uninvited? For some of us, you don't have to turn the, block, the clock back more than 20 minutes. And you're already shrinking there in your seat, embarrassed by the thoughts that have run through your mind. What thoughts enter our minds uninvited? An improper relationship, an advancement in status, a coveted possession, a moment of vengeance, unhindered by natural barriers of time and space, the mind can instantly transport us anywhere to do anything the heart desires. Have you answered the question? What thoughts enter your mind uninvited? And here's the punchline. That is who you are. That is who you are. That is who I am. And nothing more in the sight of God. Sick from the top of our heads to the soles of our feet. An idle factory is our hearts. And the law shows us the nature of our sin and its power. Secondly, the law increases our desire for sin. Hear the words of Romans 1.32. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. God's law stirs something in us. Why? Because we love our self-autonomy. It takes us all the way back to the garden. It takes us all the way back to that first initial trespass, that one act of transgression, that one act of disobedience. Adam sinned. Adam sinned. Why? Because there was a direct challenge to his self-autonomy. In the day you eat thereof, you shall be like God. Oh, I like the sound of that. I like the idea of being captain of my own ship. I like the idea of calling the shots and any suggestion that comes from outside of me that I must act in a certain way or conduct myself in a certain manner. Oh, it gets my back up. And the resentment takes hold and begins to breathe. Very simple illustration of this. I was reminded of it last Sunday. I can't remember who came to me. I was a little embarrassed at the time. But they came to me and said, I've been reading your book on Romans. I've got it out there. The series of sermons I preached maybe eight or nine years ago. Quite different from as I'm tackling them right now. Content the same, but different approach, different angle. And I like that little illustration you gave. I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. The illustration, but, but here it is. I had completely forgotten it. I think I was maybe 10 years of age, 11 years of age. There I was dutifully sitting in, what was that, fourth grade? At school, at the public school. And uh, my teacher, for some unknown reason, I think maybe she was about to release us for recess. And it was the dead of winter, Ontario, January. And she looked at us, pushed her glasses down to the edge of her nose, and she warned us, 
Now it's 10 below, 20 below out there. You bundle up. And whatever you do, please, please, please do not do what? Lick any of the metal posts, the swings, the seesaw, nothing. Do not lick. What she was thinking, I have no idea because the thought would never have crossed my mind in a million years. But there she put the seed in there. Well, I was a strong, self-willed little fella. I didn't do that at recess. I waited till I got home. Out came the hockey nets to play street hockey on the street in front of our house. And at some point, something just sort of welled up in me. What does she know? Uh, I'm going to try that. And there I was grabbing the goalpost with my little hands, stuck my tongue on the crossbar of this hockey net, and there it stuck. Now, you have two choices. If this has ever happened to you, you have two choices. You hope one of your friends has the good sense to run inside, get some warm water, and you just pour it over, and eventually it comes off. I didn't have that good sense. I chose option number two, and I simply wrenched the thing off. Only a flesh wound, play on. But my point is what? This idea, why would I do that? Why would I not heed the warning? She spelt it out in living color for all of us to hear. Here is a problem. Here is a scenario. Don't do it. These will be the consequences. What did I do? I went ahead and I did it. Why? It was a challenge to my self-autonomy. We resent it. And the law does that very thing in us. It increases our desire for sin. Thirdly, it increases our burden under sin. So it increases our knowledge of sin. It increases our desire for sin. And now thirdly, it increases our burden under sin. Hear Paul's words, Romans 7, 7, when the commandment came, Sin came alive, and I died. What commandment was he talking about? He was referring to the tenth. You shall not covet. Paul, I mean, he was schooled in the, in, in the house of Pharisees. He probably had most of the Torah memorized. He knew the law frontwards and backwards. But for some reason, this commandment had escaped his notice for years. Suddenly it came alive. The Spirit of God impressed it upon Paul's mind and heart. And as Paul came face to face with this commandment, you shall not covenant. The light went on, sin came alive, and Paul realized what? That all he could ever remember, all he could ever recall, as he looked back on his life, is this sin of covetousness in his own heart. And he died. There he was, languishing under the weight of his sin. Languishing under the burden of his sin. This newspaper headline caught my eye this past week. Buffaloes, roofs, creek. After winter storm dumps seven feet of snow. I've been there. Not seven feet, but I've been pretty close. One snowflake? (laughs) Weightless. But as they accumulate and accumulate and accumulate and accumulate, oh, that weight upon the rooftop, that weight upon the tree's branches, that crushing weight, That is what the law does. 
Oh, one snowflake, one peccadillo, one little sin. No, we come face to face with God's codified law and it shows us at every turn our multitude of sins. It increases our knowledge of sin. It increases our desire for sin and then it increases our burden under sin. That is why the law came in. The law came in so that the trespass might increase. Now Paul makes a third point. Verse 21, grace abounded. Now follow his thought flow. Go right back to the start of verse 20 with me. Now the law came in. We've been there, done that. The law entered. Why? To increase the trespass. Okay, we've been there, we've done that. The trespass increased. But now look at what he says in the the rest of verse 20. But where sin increased... And so where that knowledge of sin increased, where that desire for sin increased, where that burden under sin increased, what happened? Grace abounded all the more. That the greater our trespasses, the greater God's grace. The heavier our trespasses, Oh, the far greater the grace of God. The darker our trespasses, oh, far greater, far superior, vastly superior, the grace of God. That as our multitude of trespasses grows and grows and grows, we understand fully what Paul described back in verse 16, that the Lord Jesus died not just for that one trespass back in the garden, But the Lord Jesus died for our trespasses. This multitude of sins. This multitude of transgressions. And so our sin increased. Our knowledge of our sin increased. The burden of the weight of sin upon us increased. But in so doing, it serves to magnify the grace of God. There's a famous story written in the 1800s. Victor Hugo, the hunchback of Notre Dame. Hunchback of Notre Dame. Quasimodo is the name of the hunchback. A rather deformed creature. Perhaps you're familiar with the story. Fear is going out in public. And so Quasimodo, he lives a solitary life in the cathedral bell tower. One day, a young girl catches his eye. Esmeralda, I think was her name. A gypsy girl. And he falls in love with Esmeralda. Esmeralda, the story is quite complicated. What a tangled web it is. Uh, She is accused of attempted murder. Uh, And off she goes. She is led to the gallows. Quasimodo spies what is happening, realizes her fate, and he swoops down to save Esmeralda and hides her securely there in the the bell tower of the cathedral. And at some point, as they're together in that bell tower, Quasimodo begins weeping. And Esmeralda sees the tears, she asks him what is wrong, and he utters these words. I never knew how ugly I was, till I saw how beautiful you are. The opposite is true here. It is the opposite that Paul is doing. It is as we see just how ugly our sin is. It is as we perceive just how high, what a stench, how it reeks to the highest heaven, our sins and trespasses and transgressions, that the grace of God is magnified. 
that as we see the ugliness of our sin through the law, at the same time we behold the beauty of the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, sickness, illness, makes us appreciate health, doesn't it? Drought makes us appreciate rain. Noise makes us appreciate quiet. Thirst makes us appreciate water. God's law makes us appreciate God's grace. God's grace. Oh, I know I quote from it a lot, so why not one more time? John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. So there's Pilgrim. There's that chap named Christian. Off he goes on his journey. He leaves the city of destruction. He's got his eyes fixed on home. And uh, soon in his journey, he has his conversion experience because as he walks along, what drives him? What causes him to leave the city of destruction is, is he, he is pursuing. He is longing for. He is seeking someone who can what? Help him with the burden on his back. You see, in a dream, he was exposed to the book. The book is the law, and the law brought him face to face with his sin, and he realizes that our helplessness, here's a list of things I can never do, even if given a million years. Here's a list of things I transgress every day in word and thought and deed, and his burden grows, and it grows, and it grows, and he runs from the city of destruction, and he's looking for what? I need someone who can alleviate the burden. I need someone who can take it, rip it off from my shoulders, and he comes to a hill called what? Calvary. At the top of the hill, there is what? A lonely thing, a cross. And as he beholds the cross, what happens to the burden upon his back? It falls from off his shoulders. I think he's about halfway up the hill at this point. It rolls down the hill and it is swallowed by a sepulcher, a grave. It all points beautifully, wonderfully to what? The Lord Jesus Christ. The only one who can relieve the burden that no matter how big the burden is. Oh, the crushing weight of sin and the wrath of God to know that it is fully relieved. The full weight, freedom, the ropes cracked by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three shining ones, angels, immediately appear to him. The first, it utters something as follows. Your sins are forgiven. They are forgiven. The second one doesn't speak. Do you know what the second one does? He undresses Bunyan, tears off his rags, and put new clothes upon him, pointing to what? Justification. Your standing before God now is completely altered. You have been dressed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. And the third does what? He seals his forehead. The seal of promise, the seal of the Holy Spirit. That as he now continues on that sojourn homeward, he has this absolute assurance that what God, the work God has started in him, he will bring to completion. He will bring to fruition because almighty power, almighty grace have been pledged for the good of that solitary figure, that pilgrim, that Christian making his way home. Oh, grace abounded. The law came in. Why? So that the trespass might increase. Why? So that the grace of God might abound. Paul doesn't stop there. He adds a fourth point. Grace reigned. 
Follow his thought flow again from the start of verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. His choice of words is fascinating. Fascinating. He employs what can only be described as as kingdom terminology. Reigning, right? He says it there, right at the outset of verse 21. As sin reigned in death. It's actually in the larger context, the third time he's made that point. Look at what he says at the start of verse 14. Yet death reigned. From Adam to Moses. Look at verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, again, that's Adam's transgression, death reigned through that one man. Now he repeats it for a third time. Sin reigned in death. And so he is using kingdom terminology, sin and death reigning ever since original sin, ever since Adam's solitary act of disobedience. Sin and death have reigned. You think, for example, we have it pictured for us in the history of the, of the children of Israel. There they are languishing in the land of Egypt. There they are in physical bondage. There they are in slavery. And they are at the mercy of a tyrannical Pharaoh, aren't they? Pharaoh can do whatever he pleases with them. Pharaoh can execute them. He executes the infants at the drop of a hat. Pharaoh exercises tyrannical, absolute power over the children of Israel. I was reading recently a book on the Tudors, King Henry VIII. And I was trying to enter into this text what it must have been like to have lived in the court of King Henry VIII, not knowing if this were the particular day when you would lose your head. Oh, he was removing people's heads from their bodies all over the place for the most trivial of matters. Oh, what it would be like to live under a tyrannical ruler. What it would be like to live in a situation where you were completely helpless and hopeless. You couldn't do anything. You were at the mercy of absolute power. It had sway over you, compounded even more. Let's say you lived in that situation, but you were oblivious to it and didn't even know it. Now you're coming closer to the point, the text. Sin and death reigned. Absolute tyrannical control over every human being in Adam. And yet the vast majority of them remain absolutely clueless. That death can call you at any moment. Any moment this very day. And because of your sin, you are under that judgment of death. And in Adam, dead in your trespasses and sins, if you die in that state, in that condition, you enter into a far more severe reality. Eternal condemnation. Eternal damnation. Oh, death and sin, they are tyrants. And they reign over all who are in Adam. But Paul's point is what? Well, you see, the law entered. And the law entered that the trespass might increase 
The trespass increased that grace might abound and that as we come to an understanding and appreciation of the grace of God and all that God offers us in the Lord Jesus and we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are then transferred from that reign, that tyrannical reign of sin and death into another reign. What is it? Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign. How? How does it reign? Paul answers the question. Through righteousness. Whose righteousness is that? Oh, God help you, it's not yours. Whose righteousness is that? That's Christ's righteousness. That's a justified saint in the sight of God. That new humanity, those who believe in the Lord Jesus are one with Him. Because of that righteousness, grace now reigns. That is how it reigns. That is how God breaks the tyrannical control of sin and death. And why does God do it? Oh, grace also might reign through righteousness. Here it is. Leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, eternal life. My friend, what will it be like? What will it be like to gaze upon? What will it be like to soak in the infinite glory of God? What will that be like? Here, here is a poor comparison. Here is a poor comparison. You travel down to the Gulf of Mexico. You travel down there. You got the Atlantic just beyond it. And you pull out a thimble from your pocket. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to move the Atlantic Ocean somewhere else, only using that thimble. Are you with me? It's absurd. Now multiply that by a billion billion. And we're still not getting anywhere near eternal life. We're not getting anywhere near what it will be like to soak in the infinite glory of God for all eternity. Grace reigns over those who are in Christ. That reign has been established because God himself has broken the tyrannical power of sin and death. And he has done so for a purpose. It is for his own glory. And that he will bring a people for all eternity into the presence of his glory, where they will behold him in his infinite glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Two men, two humanities, two actions, two results, and two covenants. The law doesn't solve the problem that began with Adam. The law comes in to point us to the solution that is found in Christ. You hear these words. I'll conclude with these words from a well-known hymn. And if you aren't a believer, I beg you to consider these words seriously and, and hear them. And may the Spirit of God impress them upon your heart. Here they are marvelous grace. I think it's a wonderful summation of what Paul is saying in this text. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder, on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. The superabounding grace of God for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, we seek now your blessing upon the preaching of your word.
We ask you to accompany it with power and to apply it to every heart gathered here this morning. We pray this for the furtherance of your kingdom. We pray this for the glory of your name. We pray this that the Lord Jesus might receive the reward of his labors, that is the praise of his people. And we ask it, seeking it of you in his matchless and worthy name. Amen.